This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Top of the morning. It is April 24th, um, kind of midday here in terms of the East Coast. Markets have been down slightly, but it's been kind of more of the same. Right now, we're really trying to digest earnings seasons and profit reports. So, Tim, I'll let you kind of get into those numbers and what your thoughts are. Um, you know, at least as of Friday morning, 76% of the S&P 500 companies have been beating expectations. Yeah. Well, let me get into that in a minute. And we'll obviously spend a lot of time on earnings. This is the biggest week uh, of the quarter for earnings. I think it's something like 44% of the S&P reports this week. Uh, I just wanted to spend a minute looking at what happened last week. You know, the market is, the equity market starting to weaken at least feels like a little bit after the big move that we've had. And I think some of the things pressuring that is just the concern about growth going forward. You know, we got weekly jobless claims. Uh, and I talk all the time about how I think this is the most important employment data that you should be focused on, not non-farm payrolls. And claims have very, very clearly now hooked higher. And it's just another one of those indicators that the bears are going to point to and say, every time claims have come off the bottom by this amount, you've had a recession. Um, also, credit in the beige book, uh, in the beige books, when you when you go from region to region, you you there's a very clear message that small businesses are seeing tighter credit conditions, and they're seeing uh, term loans that they have to renew, renewing at much higher rates. This is I talk about this all the time. The slow uh, there's a reason why there's a reason why people always say that uh, monetary policy. Uh, works in a lag because loans reset over time. They don't all reset immediately as soon as the Fed raises interest rates. And one thing that's clear is you're seeing in, in the Beige Book is that companies in region by region are noticing and struggling with the higher credit costs. Uh, you, you still saw some deposit flight. Uh, it's not huge, but there is still deposit flight. There is still pressure on banks, especially small banks, to pay more money on deposits, and that has an impact on NIM, and a negative impact on NIM has a long-term impact on uh, how on loans and and the growth in the economy. And, and Goldman Sachs actually had a study out today that showed that correlation to, to as bank profitability comes under pressure, as net interest margins come under pressure, loans decline. It's it's intuitive, but they kind of uh, bored out. And then the other one is is the leading economic indicators. Uh, really came came out last week and came in lower, uh, came in negative 7.8%. And just like with claims, that's one of those indicators that when it gets this negative, you're probably going to, in all likelihood, you're going to have a recession. Now, I think right now what a bull case could be uh, is that how much of it's if you have two declining earnings seasons, which occurred in 2022, uh, that's typically a bearish indicator. But you have guys uh, now who are saying, look, you know, we might have already had a decline in earnings seasons built into the cake and um, the market's already priced that in. 
That's what it feels like. I, I mean, I disagree that that's going to be the case, but that's what it feels like. That's what the market is telling you. And I wrote an essay over the weekend, and the title of it was Humility. And the whole point of the essay was I spent much of my career just trying to figure out if companies' earnings revisions were going to be positive or negative, if the street was going to be proven to be too high or too low on earnings. Well, earnings revisions have been dramatically lower, yet stocks haven't really gone down that much. I mean, you know, you, you had a really nasty 2022, but we've been pretty solid with the, that, that small group of tech leadership into this year. You know, earnings are always going to beat expectations because expectations get revised down. A great example of it is uh, KNX, Knight, uh, transportation company, trucking company. Uh, six months ago, the street was looking for them to do a buck 20 in earnings. Well, they put up a quarter, that uh, the fourth quarter of last year, that looks weak. And then IR gets on the phone as you get through January, in February, in March, and starts talking street numbers down. You know, whoever the IR at, at, at night is calling all the street analysts and saying, eh, you might be a little high on gross margin. You might be a little high on the top line. The next thing you know, what was a buck 20 earnings number for the first quarter turns into 73 cents. All of a sudden, the print goes up. They come in at 73, 74 cents, and, and CNBC runs the headline, night transportation beats the quarter by a penny. It's really kind of nonsense. Um, and that has happened all through the market. I mean, market expectations going into the quarter are for earnings to be down about 7%. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of companies will beat those estimates because they control what the estimate is. Um, it's as simple as that. The, the, the Wall Street analysts are not really doing rigorous work, by and large, on trying to figure out what the number is. They're listening to what the company tells them, and they're plugging in those numbers. That's how it works, unfortunately. Uh, so the number of companies that beat earnings is always going to be high, uh, unless every uh, investor relations department decides to take a whole, whole lot of time off. Um, but you know, look, overall demand... Uh, is is still pretty weak. And now we'll see what we get with earnings this week. But I think you're going to see companies beat and then guide lower. Right now, the market is looking for Q2 to have negative earnings and then Q3 to be up small and then Q4 to be stronger again. So you tell me who's right, the equity market or the bond market? The equity market is looking for earnings to reaccelerate off of a very high level. The bond market is looking for the Fed to be aggressively cutting rates in the back half of this year. Both can't be right. And I tend to think that both are wrong. I tend to think that the market is going to, that the economy is going to hang in a little more durably than what the street expects. We're going to be bouncing around zero-ish type GDP growth, but with still a little bit uh, of inflation. Look at where the UK is. And I'm not saying we're the basket case that the UK is, but they're deep in stagflation already. Uh, and they tend to be a little bit ahead of where we are. They've got a worse labor issue than we do, but we've got a labor issue. And, uh, you know, it's going to take a meaningful market contraction, uh, economic contraction, to get labor down to where the Fed needs it. And if we get that kind of contraction, well, earnings are not going to be up in the fourth quarter, uh, I can promise you. In terms of manufacturing numbers, um, S&P Global showed that business activity uh, really didn't 
fall into the doldrums in the fall and the winter months. We've actually seen expansion. Um, PMIs rose to 53.7 in April, um, up from 52.6 in May. So that's expansionary. But when we're looking at the ISMs, which will come out um, a handful of days, we're likely going to see a contraction there. So it appears that there's definitely um, non-manufacturing services are juxtaposed with with manufacturing right now. Yeah, no two ways about it. Like it's two different economies. The manufacturing economy is in contraction and the service economy still remains pretty buoyant. Uh, I argue that what where I've probably been too negative, not probably, but where I've been too negative is on how durable consumption would hold up. And I think the reason why consumption has hold up held up is, and this is Fed data that I'm citing, but the top 20% of the economy is still better off from an accumulated savings standpoint than before the pandemic. The top 1% is far better off. It's the bottom 80%, which represents 63% of consumption, that is weaker. But it's but it's that top 20%, I feel like, that's kind of holding the service economy up. Now, uh, so and that's why you continue to have positive service PMIs. There's an argument that look, service econ- the service economy never really goes into into recession. It's always about construction and manufacturing and warehousing. If you look at the great financial crisis, all of the job losses were in construction and manufacturing, government, education, leisure and hospitality. That hung in there, and it'll it it may well hung, hang in there again. What matters is on the manufacturing side and on the construction side. Now, you pointed out that the um, some of the uh, the ISM in manufacturing actually was above 50. But you have to remember what a diffusion survey is and how it works. It's just asking the very simple question is, do you feel better than you did last month? And, you know, we got into some historically weak negative manufacturing numbers uh, in, 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 in these ISMs. So, uh, 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 basically at, at, at 50 level, people are saying, no, I feel about the same as I did last week. So these numbers, and you can look at previous recessions, they bounce around, uh, on their way to going lower. So I wouldn't, uh, overreact to that ISM. Plus this morning, we got a really weak Dallas number, uh, we talked about on the podcast last week that the Empire State, the New York manufacturing number looked a little better. Philly looked pretty weak. So when you look at Philly and you look at Dallas, they tend to lead. Uh, I think you'll you'll see a resumption of of manufacturing ISM soften. The the some of the some of the commentary in these regional beige books have really been very soft. One of the biggest risks right now is obviously the U.S. deadline is approaching faster than we expect. A lot of this is going to be contingent on tax receipts. So, mm-hmm. you know, Goldman analysts are saying that could be a uh, deadline at the end of late July. But if receipts continue to undershoot, this could happen as early as, you know, first week or second week of June. Yeah. Yeah. And tax receipts do look like they're coming in softer. So it certainly looks like August is out the window and it looks maybe early July, late June, whatever. You know, McCarthy says that he has got the votes um, to pass a debt ceiling. Now, this is in a sense, it's meaningless, right? Because the legislation is going nowhere. It's not like the 
House budget is going to go to the Senate and pass. It'll never even get a vote in the summit in, in, in the Senate. And certainly it's not going to the president. But basically, there's no negotiation. There's no there's no talk at all uh, from with the White House and the House GOP until they pass uh, a budget. And we'll see if um, if McCarthy can hold what I heard somebody call it the five families of the GOP. There's, I guess, five distinct groups within the House now uh, from the moderates who are in Biden districts all the way out to the Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. And it looks like he's got the Marjorie Taylor Greens in the world in, in this budget proposal. His risk is losing some of those uh, House uh, members that are in Biden districts and don't want to have to run for re-election in 2024 with some of the kind of draconian cuts, especially to kind of, you know, the protections around food insecurity. Look, every politician, and not to get too far off on this, would like to figure out how not to over-subsidize people not working, but at the same time feed children. My wife was a teacher. Trust me, you can't teach a kid who's hungry. Like there's there's some very Mm -hmm. basic things. Like if you've got a kid who isn't getting fed, he doesn't have or she doesn't have a real good chance of being able to succeed in life. And that that really is the core problem that you have. How how do we get away from over-subsidizing, you know, people not working, uh, but at the same time not have kids going to school hungry? We had uh, the child child tax credits um, earlier, I mean, last year, of course, but those expired. Um, yeah. So it's a possible solution. But, yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's always the risk. Um, markets always get skittish, it seems, with these deadlines approach. Uh, so we'll just see how it plays out. Now, you know, The Economist just came out with an article that kind of was discussing the difference between the efficacy of the U.S. monetary policy versus China. Um, you know, who do you think's really, you know, played this situation out better? Was it, you know, the PBOC or is it the Fed? Um, and kind of like, let's kind of compare and contrast, you know, different what they did. Well, I mean, let's take them each, each uh, apart. In the U.S., I mean, they obviously started way too late. It was uh, only 14, 15 months ago that the Fed was still buying mortgage-backed securities, uh, which has put a big giant hole in their balance sheet, a big duration problem in their balance sheet, like it happened with Silicon Valley and and uh, and Signature. Um, so they obviously started late, but I think that they've they this has been the steepest and fastest uh, rate tightening program uh, in modern history. So they've been responsive to the problem that that they were at least uh, partly responsible for creating. Um, but we'll see. The job in is, is certainly not done. And the job certainly isn't done in China either. Uh, you know, you put up some better first quarter numbers out of China last week, but the compare was versus a lockdown comparison. So, of course, the numbers are going to be good. More anecdotally, it certainly looks like some some um, consumer confidence is back. If you just look at the strength in Macau uh, as just one very simple measure, it looks like the real estate market is better in the tier one cities of Beijing and Shanghai. I, I you know, if, if there ends up not, if they end up fixing or not having a really long extended property crisis in the tier two and tier three, tier three cities, I'll be surprised. I mean, my view has been all along 
that there's no fixing the property issue that you have in China. If you just if you created far far too much capacity into a into a society that is shrinking, by the way, uh, and 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 so much of the real estate market was driven by speculation, buying an empty apartment having it generate zero cash flow for you, and then selling it to somebody else at a higher price, once prices stop going up, that game is over. So, you know, maybe maybe they figured out somehow, some way to fix the tier two and tier three uh, property crisis. Uh, I just tend to doubt it. Uh, so we'll see. So I, I think for both uh, the Fed and for um, uh, the monetary authorities in China, it's will it's it's the answer is we'll see how they've done. Yeah, I think the articles refer to the whole concept as attenuation. You don't understand the strength of your you know medicine, kind of draw back on it functionally. Um, yeah, yeah, and so I mean we've seen, and obviously the Chinese situation is a little bit different because with the lockdowns, inflation never really surpassed two percent anyway. So wasn't so much of a you know, banking yeah. management as opposed to just general, you know, government mandates. Yeah. At, at no point did you get uh, a level of nominal growth that was so wildly out of whack like we did with the pandemic over stimulus that we had in the U.S. and in Europe to a lesser extent. Mm -hmm. Anything else, uh, Tim? I know you were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, Japan got yeah. debt to GDP ratios above like with round 230 um what's that mean yeah i mean you're you're at you're at debt to gdp at like 280% oh. so you can think about it if you raised the cost of capital by 1% then you would increase your servicing cost annually by 2.8% of gdp now so much of japanese debt is internally funded you start to get into kind of the the MMT theories that this is really just about owing yourself money and all that, uh, but one way or another, they're gonna either they're gonna have to figure out how to uh, taper off yield curve control because there's actual real debt in Japan. What people don't remember about Japan is one of the ways that they avoided inflation uh, is that they were able in just a couple decades to move 40% of manufacturing out of Japan and into low cost China. Um, that period is, is sort of coming to an end. That big labor arbitrage that they enjoyed by outsourcing manufacturing to China, just like the rest of the world did it, people don't realize the Japanese did it better and more effectively than anybody else. Well, that, as we've talked about, just like for the United States, China's no longer deporting, de exporting deflation. Uh, so that has the same impact on China, so uh, on Japan. So Japan's looking at three, four percent inflation, and yet they're managing yields way down at what you know, fifty basis points. So they're going to have to figure something out. And either the yield is going to have to tick up a little bit, or the yen is just going to continue its 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 multi-decade weakness. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, and then, as I said, it's all about earnings this week, and it's all about the earnings guides this week. Because look, the, 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 I think one thing that's wild about this market is that the leadership has been in these six or seven tech stocks, right? Microsoft, Netflix, uh, NVIDIA. But if you actually look at those individual names, 
and I talked about this again in the essay, these are names that really are going through what there was, there was a great strategist named Vadim Zlotnikov. He used to be at Sanford Bernstein. Now he's at Fidelity. And he had this whole study and he, he called it growth purgatory. When companies go through growth purgatory, when, you know, look at Tesla, when you were a 40, 50% grower and you were selling every car that you can manufacture and everybody could make uh, great assumptions way out into the future, uh, you get a big, big multiple. Well, when all of a sudden you're generating inventories and it looks like you're a car company that's just as cyclical as any other car company, mm -hmm. multiples should come in a ton. Well, look at Microsoft and look at Microsoft and Amazon. They the big growth drivers for them, respectively, has been AWS and Azure. You know, they're they're cloud computing businesses and in consulting. Those businesses have gone from 45% type growth, 40% type growth, to now maybe in the 15% range. And we'll find out more as they report this year. But that that's kind of where they've guided people to. One would think that if you have gone from 40% growth in your growth segment to 15% growth, multiple should be contracting very meaningfully. And that hasn't really happened. Netflix isn't a growth story anymore. Netflix, I think for the year has four or 5% uh, uh, top line growth expected, 7% uh, top line growth expected. These just aren't big time growth companies anymore. And yet they are leading and holding up as if they are entirely acyclical. To me, the market is looking through earnings. The market, the way the equities are holding up, to me, is the market saying, okay, this is the, the Fed putting a lot of pressure on the market, but the Fed is going to back away here pretty soon. Growth will resume, and we can and we can then therefore justify that this is just an earnings trough and earnings are going to hook back up again. I just I, I, I just don't see that. I, I, I again, um, either the bond market's right or equities are right, and I think they're both wrong. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thanks for your time today, Tim. Um, we'll be out next week, but uh, we'll resume the week after in terms of the podcast. So for all our listeners and subscribers, we'll talk to you then, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.